again. <laughs> For the last time this semester, we have a faculty talk. Uh, about 40 minutes ago, I was asked to introduce Dr. Green, which tells you it's mid-April, things are falling apart. <laughs> so here I am. There he is. <laughs> Dr. Green came to the college in 1998. He's married to his wife, Beth Ann. Has three lovely children, Lucy, somewhere out here, no doubt, uh, Matilda, and Charlie. We like Mrs. Green and the children. <laughs> and we appreciate Dr. Green. So he is going to talk to us. He's a valued member of the history department and the college as a whole. He does a lot of important work. He may not be the snappiest dresser on campus, but he is good for the college. Thank you, Paul. Sweet man. Good morning, coming to college. Uh, I am cognizant that it is Friday. It is April. It is a beautiful day. And I know that you're tired. Uh, but if you're willing, I'd like you to do a little bit of thinking with me this morning, if you're willing. But first, a story. Uh, once upon a time, there was a boy named Harry. Harry lived in the county of Surrey in southeast England with his aunt and his uncle, Vernon and Petunia Dursley, along with their son, Dudley. Life in the Dursley household was an unhappy one for Harry. That is, until at the age of 11, he discovered the true, deeper story of his family and the real identity. It turns out, and I hope I'm not giving anything away, Harry was a wizard. When he became aware of, when Harry became aware of and remembered the true past of his family and of himself, everything changed for Harry. Once upon another time, there was another boy. His name was Luke. He lived on the desert planet Tatooine with his aunt and his uncle, Owen and Baru Lars. Luke seemed destined for a mundane and dreary life of hard and unfulfilling work on his un uncle's austere moisture farm. Yes, moisture farm. But everything changed for Luke when he learned that he was actually the son of a once valiant and brave Jedi Knight. He too became aware of and remembered the true past of his family, and everything changed for Luke. Once upon a third time, there was yet another boy. His name was Clark. He lived in the rural Kansas town of Smallville with his parents, Sam and Molly Kent. Nothing could have been more ordinary for young Clark as he lived a very average life, doing very average things with his very average friends day after day. It appeared as, as though he was bound for a life of ongoing ordinariness, 
that is, until he learned that his actual name was Kalel, and he'd been born to Jorel and Laura on the planet Krypton, and that he was imbued with superhuman powers on planet Earth. He became aware of and remembered the true past of his family, and everything changed for Clark. There's something obviously iconic and powerful about these stories and the common story that each tells. They are tales of hidden or lost true selves, unveiled to disclose grand and extraordinary identities that lead our young heroes to adventures and dangers beyond their wildest imaginations. But that's not all. These aren't merely stories of secret identities laid bare. They're also tales of newly discovered relationships to the past. New stories, true stories revealed. With their disclosure comes a full-on recalibration of everything that our young heroes ever believed to be true about themselves and the worlds they inhabited. Their lives are re-narrated in an instant, transformed beyond recognition. These are stories about what it means for people to abandon the false stories they'd always relied on to make sense of their circumstances, false stories they were unwittingly bound by, and to take up the challenge to remember rightly, to remember new stories of who they were and where they were going. Each of us has an identity and a moral framework, something we might call a moral imagination. Our moral imaginations are embedded within and rely upon existing stories that we tell to ourselves, about ourselves, to make sense of ourselves. They're not something that we're necessarily all that aware of. They sit quietly in the background. Stories about the groups and the places, the ideas, circumstances, and relationships that make you, you. Harry, Luke, and Clark were each bound by stories, false stories, that shaped their imaginations. These stories put boundaries on and dictated who they were and what they thought they could become. What I'm trying to say is that our moral imaginations have a narrative shape. They are fed and molded by the way we tell the story of our lives to ourselves. The question we need to ask is whether the stories that feed our moral imaginations are true. Have we endeavored to remember rightly? Are we awakened to the deeper and truer stories that enable us to live lives that we're called to live? We continue our celebration of our Reformation heritage on this 500th birthday this year of the Protestant Reformation, and over the past year, as you know, the faculty have been deliberating over the question, reformed for what? What does the Reformation tradition have to teach us today? Well, I think at least one of the legacies of this heritage concerns the question of our stories and our efforts to sustain moral imaginations that are faithful to Jesus. Protestant reformers, I would argue, didn't alter the direction of Christian development merely by urging Christians to believe a different theology. Justification by faith alone, in God's grace alone, because of Christ's merit alone. They did that, but that wasn't all. They weren't simply refreshing the way we read the Bible. Protestant reformers also urged believers to rethink the story 
of God's work in the world in a way that entirely retooled their moral imaginations. Their examples of remembering rightly can give us courage to do the same. Once upon a time, there was a man named Martin. He was a devout Augustinian monk and a serious-minded Catholic priest. Late in 1510, seven years before he would write his fateful 95 Theses, Martin traveled with a companion across the Alps by foot, bound for the city of Rome. Think about that. It was 800 miles one way by foot. It's pretty tough. He made the trip to conduct some business on behalf of his monastic order, but he also traveled to Rome as a pilgrim. At this time, Martin, like all Catholics, was captivated by the glories of the city of Rome, believing it to be the epitome, the very epicenter of Christ's work on earth. The opportunity to visit the holy city was a once-in-a-lifetime dream. There was a place anywhere in the world where Martin could experience and find the vibrancy and the vitality of Christian faith. It was surely going to be Rome. Upon arriving in the holy city, Martin fell on his face. He was really tired. That's part of it. But he fell on his face and said, Be greeted, thou holy Rome, thou holy because of the holy martyrs dripping with their blood. He was smitten and kind of giddy. This, he thought, would surely be the high point of his life. A true pilgrim, he soaked up every part of what the city had to offer to a faithful follower of Christ. He said mass at many of Rome's pilgrimage churches seven in one day. At the Latran Palace, he climbed the stairs said to have come from Pilate's house, following the instruction to say an Our Father prayer at each step. Doing so, he was assured, could spring one of his own relatives from purgatory, the intermediary state between this life and the one to come. He dutifully prayed the prayer at each step with his own paternal grandfather on his mind. As young Martin reached the top of the stairs, something unsettling and ominous happened that foreshadowed a life of struggle against some of the failures of his beloved mother church. A, st- a skeptical thought crossed his mind. He thought, I wonder if this is really true. Does all this praying step by step really do what they tell me it's going to do? There were other encounters during Martin's visit to Rome that left him feeling uneasy about what he'd always believed to be true about the larger framework of his faith. He saw local priests carelessly and ineptly repeating the Mass. He took note of visible evidences of the church's corruption and greed. He observed the ostentatious living quarters of church officials. He heard tales of immorality and debauchery of Christian leaders run amok. Casual blasphemies being uttered at random on the streets of Rome and the mocking of saints and the cynical sneering at the meaning of the Eucharist. This was the epitome of Christ's work on earth. This This is the headquarters of God's glorious mission to humankind. Martin left Rome for Germany in sadness, with his eyes having been opened to some of the hard realities that underwrote the institutions of Christianity that he'd worked so much uh, to put his hope in. His confidence was shaken. His faith rattled. He was humbled. The seeds 
of a kind of self-skepticism had been planted. The Great Reformation historian Heiko Obermann notes that Luther's reminiscences of his trip to Rome are an invaluable aid to understanding why the Augustinian monks started on that lonely journey which would ultimately bring him to the Reformation breakthrough. Here began a process through which Martin Luther not only undertook a theological revolution, the just shall live by faith, but also an historiographical revolution. He began to revise his understanding of the story of Christianity in which that didn't require it to naturally lead unavoidably through Rome. Martin came to see that the narrative that required the path of Christian development to pass through Rome was a false narrative. And the courage he would need to trod the path of the Reformation was the courage to remember rightly. Young Martin, like young Harry, young Luke, and young Clark, had been living under a kind of spell, not that different from a concept Marxian theorists refer to as false consciousness, a kind of warped sense of the world informed by a false story and a distorted understanding of the nature of the present age. When Marxists used the term, they applied exclusively to class structures, corrupt and that, that how cr- class structures corrupt and weaken the resolve of members of the proletariat to fight for justice. I'm using the term, term a little more broadly here. Martin Luther was raised and lived under a certain set of social constraints that led him to tell a very restricted story of himself, about himself, to make sense of himself. It was a story riddled with distortions errors, and blind spots, which led him to a faulty vision of his own life. His trip to Rome played a vital role in helping him to break the spell and to undermine the power of this false consciousness. But there's something you should know about false consciousness. In thinking about it in the context of Harry, Luke, and Clark, you might get the impression that having a false consciousness is a little like being shackled in chains or imprisoned in an iron cage. And that breaking the spell of false consciousness is a wonderfully liberating, even joyful experience. For Harry, Luke, and Clark, connecting to their true stories unlocked hidden powers and sent them on marvelous adventures. They make it look fun. But it turns out, at least in many cases, we actually enjoy living under the spell of false consciousness. False consciousness, a false consciousness can be kind of warm and cozy. It's very often fed by stories that make perfect sense to us. It's a dwelling place of comfort and familiarity. Just ask Martin. Even after he left Rome early in 1511, he wasn't yet ready to turn his back on the story that had comforted him his whole life. The thought of abandoning that story was terrifying, as it should have been. Even after seeing the corruptions of Rome, the story of Rome's preeminence still beckoned him and continued to shape him. His false consciousness remained a deep comfort. When he finally did muster the courage to challenge that false consciousness, he did so at great cost to himself, to his friends, and to everyone he knew. Even when he finally acknowledged that it was the right thing to do. He understood that the lonely path of reformation would be filled with hardships, suffering, death threats, and excommunication. 
In many significant ways, Martin's life would have been much easier if he'd stuck to the comforts of that old false narrative. False consciousness is a kind of warm cocoon that enables us to do exactly what we want to do, resting in a false assurance that everything's fine. Making the hard decision to remember rightly can be like ripping that cocoon open and exposing us to the cold. Another story of remembering rightly illustrates my point. Once upon a time, there was a young man named Thomas. He worked a conventional job as a computer programmer by day and descended into the underworld of computer hacking by night. As a hacker, he went by the pseudonym Neo. His life hummed along as such until a small band of seeming outlaws kidnapped and confronted Neo with the truth about his world. Nothing was as it seemed. The world as he experienced it was actually a computer-generated illusion. By taking the challenge to swallow an infamous red pill, Neo's false consciousness was stripped away to reveal the real world in which human beings were nothing more than batteries that powered the uber-intelligent machines that had decade before taken over the world. The red pill awakened Neo to his true identity. But it also forced him to confront a difficult, painful new history. Yes, Neo mustered the courage to remember rightly, but the true story now fueling his moral imagination was grim, disturbing, and terrifying. Even so, he recognized that it was better to live wakefully in the world that actually is than to continue his former life of false consciousness within the Matrix in a state of willful ignorance and complicity. It's not hard to draw comparisons between the patterns within the matrix and those of our own world. To a sleepy-eyed people distracted by material comforts, social privilege, and technological distraction, a wave of varied writers, activists, and witnesses, seeming outlaws, have arisen in recent years to offer red pills of their own. They promise that if we're willing to take one of those red pills, our eyes will be opened to the real world, a world filled with brokenness and sorrow, police misconduct, and mass incarceration of African Americans, income inequalities on the basis of gender and race, and the sexual victimization and exploitation of women, to name only a few. Agreeing to take that bitter red pill has the effect of ripping away our false consciousness with its assumptions that we live in a land of opportunity where everybody gets a fair shake and everything will be work fine if you simply work hard and obey the law. With a newfound courage to remember rightly, we can begin to live into difficult stories that inform, reform, and transform our moral imaginations. And in doing so, nothing can ever be the same again. Taking the red pill is to become what some members of this movement have called woke, right? And to be woke 
as the columnist David Brooks put it, is to be radically aware and justifiably paranoid. To be unsettled, disturbed, indignant, and angry. If you're not outraged, as one protester put it, you're not paying attention. This kind of awakening is a good, even necessary feature of developing a mature and faithful moral imagination that tells the truth about the deep brokenness of our world. Bolstered by sin, all of us exhibit tendencies to erect and live comfortably under various false uh, forms of false consciousness, fueled by false narratives, resting under sleepy moral imaginations, hell-bent on justifying ourselves and all of our decisions. None of us should underestimate our capacities to tell stories of our lives that validate ourselves, our priorities, and our central convictions and that shield us from outrageous patterns of injustice and violence in the world. A life of Christian faith requires us to look on these stories with great suspicion. We actually need movements like Black Lives Matter and hashtag me too, and writers like ta Coates and Michelle Alexander to help awaken us to systems of oppression and exploitation working right under our noses to enable us to see the real world, to help us remember rightly, to unsettle our personal narratives of comfort. These truth-tellers can be instruments of our Christian formation. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. But we need to be careful here. Our awakening will inevitably be accompanied by a swelling sense of anger, much of it righteous. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. To be woke brings with it a temptation to allow our newly refurbished moral imaginations to become platforms for a newfound project of chest-thumping self-righteousness. As an opportunity for angry fist-shaking at the groups and systems out there, that are causing all this suffering and pain. To point the finger in smug self-satisfaction at those groups and people. Getting Getting angry at all that oppression makes sense, but that can neither be the heart nor the end of it. There's a real danger that in merely becoming angry, you'll skip right over the most important part of having remembered rightly. In the first place, a life of Christian, in the first place, a life of Christian discipleship beckons us first and always to see ourselves as the root of the problem and to recognize that the most important site of change must come in the retooling of our hearts, leading us to ask ourselves, where am I complicit? Where have I failed? And what must I sacrifice? I recently came across a powerful reflection on this feature of Christian faith from an unlikely source, the great French philosopher Michel Foucault, who was no fan of Christianity. In fact, he hated almost everything about it. But he understood something absolutely true about faith that many of us find difficult to acknowledge. Let me read just a little bit of this. Uh, Now, what about truth as a duty in our Christian societies? As everybody knows, Christianity is a confession. This means that Christianity belongs to a very special type of religion, those who impose obligations of truth on those who practice them. 
Such obligations in Christianity are numerous. For instance, there's the obligation to hold as truth a set of propositions which constitute dogma, the obligation to hold certain books as a permanent source of truth, and obligations to accept the decision of certain authorities in matters of truth. But Christianity requires another form of truth obligation. Everyone in Christianity has the duty to explore who he is, what is happening within himself, the faults he may have committed, the temptations to which he is exposed. Moreover, everyone is obliged to tell these things to other people and hence to bear witness against himself. Our duty to remember rightly is a duty to bear witness not only against false narratives that shape our lives and our world, but to bear witness against ourselves. And we shouldn't expect the process of doing so to be pleasant. If we're doing it right, the pathway of Christian discipleship should give us both an increasing awareness of the real world and its brokenness, as well as an increasing inclination for self-hesitation, self-sacrifice, even suffering. Consider perhaps the most famous example we have in Scripture of a turn toward right remembrance. Once upon a time, there was a man named Saul. He was born in the Asia Minor city of Tarsus, a citizen of the Roman Empire, and a deeply committed Jewish scribe. Details of his childhood are hazy, but his commitment to Judaism was not. As he put it, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, Pharisee, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He made a name for himself early in his career, working to eradicate a growing and troublesome Jewish sect whose members called themselves Christians. He regarded it as good work, the very center of his little sea calling. Until one day, on his way to the city of Damascus to round up and arrest more of these Christians, a flash of light from heaven suddenly came down upon him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The voice came from Jesus, the crucified and risen leader of those sectarian Jews that Saul had been attacking. He was rendered blind, and following the instructions of Jesus, was led to the city of Damascus to the house of a man named Judas. Meanwhile, another man named Ananias, after receiving his own vision from Jesus, met the man from Tarsus at the house of Judas. Jesus said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went to Saul and relayed the message from Jesus and when he did, something like scales fell from his eyes. In Saul, we find an astonishing story of remembering rightly through the divine intervention of Jesus himself. And what was the central promise uh, that Jesus imparted to Saul upon infusing him with a new story and a radically transformed imagination? You are my chosen instrument and you must suffer for my name. Any temptation Saul might have had to become self-important at the knowledge that he was given to be God's chosen instrument must have immediately been deflated at that news, that he was most certainly going to suffer 
in following that path. So, what path are you on? What are the narratives that fuel your moral imagination? Are they narratives that primarily validate the claims and interests of your own tribe? That justify the circumstances of your comfort, privilege, and future happiness? Perhaps they're stories that urge you to turn your moral indignation outward onto the sins of others, that justify your moral outrage and feed your own sense of moral superiority. If they are, chances are good that you remain, like many of us, still trapped under the various spells of false consciousness. May God do a work in our hearts. May the scales fall from our eyes as God helps us to remember rightly. May our moral imaginations align with that of Jesus. And may this alignment give us courage that we need to bear witness against ourselves. Pray with me. God, our Father, give us courage, the courage that we do need to remember rightly. And in doing so, give us the added courage to bear witness against ourselves. Help us to see that a faithful path of discipleship demands sacrifice and even suffering. Give us the strength we need to follow it. And in this, help us to know that we are never alone. In Jesus' name we pray.